Over the last two years, you've probably heard people saying, I've done my research. But in reality, research is a lot more than a few Google searches. And the problem is, when you picture a researcher, you probably think of somebody wearing a lab coat and trying to take over the world. I'm Anna. And I'm Beck. We're two researchers wanting to break down these stereotypes in a fun way. Welcome to We've Done the Research podcast, where we chat to researchers about who they are, the amazing work they're doing, and why it's so important. So today on the podcast, we have Chloe Lim, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney, doing some amazing work helping people with bowel cancer. So welcome, Chloe. Hello. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here today. We are so excited to have you. So um, a few people might be new to our podcast, and we're really trying to get people aware of who are researchers, are we the scary people that are depicted on the media, or are we, you know, the girl next door, the guy next door, just uh, doing their best, trying to make the world a bit of a better place. So Chloe... Did you always want to be a researcher or how did you get into it? I definitely did not always want to be a researcher. (laughs) If anything, I thought that that would be the last thing that I would ever want to do. It just sounded so boring. Um, And I was just like, why would anyone do research? Um, But no, I actually did. um, So I'm with the School of Psychology um, at the University of Sydney and I really wanted to become a clinical psychologist. So I did that the usual um, pathway to that, which was doing honors in psychology. And with honors, you have to do a research um, project. You can't really get out of that. Um, And I actually just fell in love with research doing that. I was like, oh, research actually doesn't have to be boring. It can be really interesting. Um, And then I was like, dare I say it, like I'm considering doing a PhD, (laughs) something that I never wanted to do um so yeah I definitely kind of just um did a hard hard left on that (laughs) oh wow really changed your mind and so the the honors that's a one-year research project isn't it and what what was that yeah so that was also in cancer survivorship I did um my project on cancer-related cognitive impairment, which is um, the fact that, um, like, I don't know if you guys have heard of chemo brain, um, but yeah, sort of that notion that when you're on chemotherapy, you kind of are forgetful, kind of like baby brain, you kind of forget things. Um, But you can actually have cognitive impairment even if you never had chemotherapy. So it might be the cancer itself. It might be the stress of just having cancer um, and things like that. So I did um, a study evaluating a fact sheet that the Cancer Council released on cognitive impairment and just sort of talking to cancer survivors and seeing what what they thought about um, the fact sheet. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is actually really interesting. I get to talk to people because it was um, it was qualitative. So I was doing interviews with people and I was like, I get to hear their stories. It's not all just like number crunching and data entry and, um, you know, <laughs> all that boring Not stuff. as boring as you originally thought. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it definitely sounds like a good reason to be inspired. I think a lot of people think that about research as well, that it's just sort of number crunching and data, but, the, you know, there is so much more to it as well um, in terms of like 
going out and talking to patients and getting, you know, to hear their experiences and all of that as well, which actually is so rewarding in the long run. It is. Yeah. It's, it's really nice. I mean, sometimes it can be very like depressing, especially with the topic of cancer, but then you talk about people who've like gone through some really like tough things and they're just so inspirational as well. Um, so that's, that's a really nice side of it is hearing how people like get through their challenges and, you know, you're thinking, oh, maybe I should use that for the next time that I'm struggling. Yeah. And so after you did your honors, you did you go straight into a PhD after that? I did. And there's so much regret with that because I'm like, oh, I should have traveled before like the world locked down and things like that. Uh, if we only knew what we know now in 2019, I think we'd all be on a holiday, long holiday. <laughs> yeah, no, I am. Um, so typically in the middle of honors, um, your supervisor should, you know, kind of ask you what you want to do after honors. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm maybe thinking of doing a PhD. And there was like a huge question mark on it. Also, because I think I, I just didn't know anything about research. And I was like, you know, maybe there's not going to be another opportunity for me to do a PhD. And like a lot of it has felt like I've just sort of fallen into research and fallen into what I've been doing. But yeah, I, I've really enjoyed the process so far. I'm always just like, oh, okay. like. Sure, sign me up. <laughs> and so did you want to stay in the sort of the cancer field or what drove you to decide on your project to be about bowel cancer? I'm really like passionate about mental health and also cancer survivorship. So I was open to both, but this one was on cancer survivorship. And I just thought, oh, that's like really interesting. Um, so I actually heard about cancer survivorship in my third year of psychology. We had a um, subject that was on applied psychology. And one of the main topics of that was health psychology. And they talked about uh, not just cancer survivorship, but, you know, the whole sort of journey of getting diagnosed, treated for um, cancer and then surviving from that. And I realized, like, I just never I don't know if this is my ignorance, but I just never thought that someone would continue to have challenges even after their treatment ends for cancer. And so that was kind of like um, this huge realization for me. Um, and hearing that this was sort of a new field of psychology, relatively new, sort of within the last couple of decades, um, that you, you're looking into cancer survivorship because more people are surviving from cancer these days because we have really good, you know, medical advances and technology and things like that. So I, I was really interested in cancer survivorship. Um, how it got into bowel cancer was literally, literally that my supervisors just recently did a meta review on all the research that was done in cancer survivorship. And there was a gap in terms of bowel cancer um, reviews, so like systematic reviews. So I just started my PhD doing a systematic review into bowel cancer. And for, our, um, for our audience who might not be familiar with systematic reviews, um, they are such a big undertaking. It's basically like going through every single research article that ever <laughs> existed about the topic of bowel cancer and reading every single one and then figuring out what is the truth here? You know, what are the big problems in bowel cancer? And, uh, you know, how can I solve it in the future? So to do one of those is such an amazing feat um, of endurance. And oh, I've, I did one that and it's still uh, going on. Uh, lasting they are so long. Yeah, like they <laughs> yes. just, I, 
I did not know what I was signing up for. Like, I just thought, <laughs> oh, yeah, like, I'll smash it out, like, in a few months, you know, like, surely there can't be that much research. And then, um, <laughs> you, yeah, so, like, I looked at five databases, and I think it returned something like, yeah, I don't know, maybe, like, 1,300 results or something. And you've got to screen through the titles and the abstracts and the full text and see if they're actually meeting your criteria. And I ended up with 81 articles. And oh, my gosh, that's huge. And qualitative. So I had to read yeah. all these long, long <laughs> papers and then like wow. integrate it, you know, like, oh, yeah, it was it was tough. And I, and I kept thinking like, oh, gosh, am I really slow? Like I, I'm just doing this. I've been doing this for months and months. And I talked to everyone else who's done a systematic review and some of them were like still doing it like two years into their PhD. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Uh, the struggle is real. <laughs> I'm nine months into doing my systematic review and I'm like, oh my gosh, when is this going to end? But like <laughs> the reward after you've done it is just so good as well because you, you know, have this really high quality data and, um, you know, you're really looking for those gaps in your field yeah. as well. So it's, it's good to do one and it's great experience, but it is such a lot of work. And Anna's exactly the same. Uh, <laughs> her systematic review has, been a, a challenge but <laughs> a big challenge but yeah I'm, I'm in the final stages second review at a at a big journal so I'm hoping by the time this podcast comes out I'll be able to oh, promote it so good. <laughs> Let's see. don't want to yeah. jinx myself knock on wood <laughs> yeah it's it, but it is really good because it just sort of summarizes the literature the research so that other people when they're looking into that topic it's kind of like nicely summarized already um, and they don't have to do like the crazy work that we did in, in terms of like reading every single article. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And I suppose with, um, systematic reviews, you kind of, it kind of lets you, um, you know, formulate more research questions as well. So with your research into bowel cancer, what's the big sort of problem that you're trying to solve with it? Firstly, there's a huge stigma with bowel cancer. There's kind of this like notion that things like breast cancer is like, a sexy cancer to market. You can have a pink ribbon, you can tell women to check their breasts every month. It's very easy to talk about. But with bowel cancer, it's kind of like a gross topic. Um, and even one of my, one of the participants that I spoke to was saying, you know, like, what are we going to do? We're going to have like a brown ribbon for bowel cancer. <laughs> like it's not really the nicest thing to market, you know, um, which is a shame because it actually is the third most common cancer worldwide. And the first two are prostate and breast cancer, which are, you know, sort of um, sex specific. And so colorectal cancer, well, you know, almost everyone can get it. And we don't talk about it as much. Um, even in Australia, you know, we have a really good program that I think it's once you hit um, I forgot the age, but I think it's 50 that the government sends out those at-home test kits. But even then, like some people just don't want to do it or, you know, if they do it and it's positive, they don't want to get follow-up tests and things like that. And I think there is... Because it's a stool yes, sample, yeah. isn't it? So it's like a... Yeah. So pooping in a cup, it is, yeah, that'd be awkward. You get that in the mail, you have to yeah, bring it in. So like a lot <laughs> of people like just are like really grossed out by it, but it is very like important. Um, obviously like any cancer is, but this is just such a common cancer and it can have a, a lot of, uh, um, you know, like longstanding issues in terms of your bowel functioning, um, which is also something that I 
I guess didn't really realize like how important proper bowel functioning is. Like, you know, I talk to people who they don't want to go out. They don't want to go to work or even just hang out with friends because they're worried that their, you know, their bowel movements are going to be unpredictable. And, um, you know, all of a sudden like something happens, like an accident happens. Um, and it's just really like disrupts Mm. your whole life. Um, which is something that I didn't really think about. So that's like a huge issue as well is trying to get people to be like a bit more understanding of the issues that people with bowel cancer can have even after surgery. Um, Mm. Yeah, because as part of the surgery, I guess I don't know either. Um, As part of the surgery, does that cause issues with, you know, holding in a bowel movement or things like that? You know, what are the main problems that that come out of it? Yeah. So, um, the surgery is so with, uh, so for people who don't know, like bowel cancers for like the large intestines. So, um, it's mm-hmm. often called colorectal cancer. So it's to do, to do with the colon and the rectum. Um, mm. and just depending on, it's such a big organ. So the cancer can be anywhere in that, um, that organ. So just depending on where the tumor is, that part of the intestines get removed. And so obviously just depending on how far along the intestinal tract it is, it can cause really like tough challenges because, you know, the reason why the large intestines are so long is because it's, it's like, it's like a conveyor belt for your food to get processed. So the longer Mm. it is, like the better your food gets digested. So if you're going to take a chunk out of the intestinal tract, it doesn't really get digested, um, very well. Um, so you might have like watery stool or you might just be going to the toilet more often than you're used to. Um, in terms of the rectum, the rectum is the one that's like right, um, right at the, I guess, exit, you'd call it. It's like the thing right before the anus. So it is the thing that stores it. So if you have the cancer in the rectum and you remove that, you no longer have that ability for your intestines to like expand and hold it in. So you might be, Mm. you know, some people, um, I don't know, might be going every like 15 minutes or something and it's just very little amount, but it has to, it can't be stored. So you Mm. can imagine that that's just going to cause all sorts of issues, even just, um, things like very common things that I think we take for granted, like going on long car trips, um, especially in Sydney where, you know, if you want to get anywhere, it's probably an hour's drive anywhere. Um, but you know, like, how do you go on a long car trip? If you can't go to the toilet, how do you watch a movie in the cinemas? How do you go to a sporting match? If you have to, you know, go to the toilet every 15 minutes, it's really difficult. How do you go to work? Like, you know, and, have that stigma of like, oh, everyone can see that I'm going to the toilet so often. And you can really understand how that would impact on someone's quality of life as well, because, you know, not being able to do the normal things that everyone else is able to do um, really impact on not only your physical, like what you're able to do, but also your mental health as well. And I suppose that that's, um, you know, really, I guess what you're trying to do with your research is understand sort of how this impacts people. So what one thing that we're really interested in um, is how do you actually measure 
quality of life in your research? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so I'm doing what's called a mixed method study. In research, you have like quantitative and qualitative research. So quantitative, um, easy way to remember that is like quantity, which is numbers. So typically that's like surveys and things like that. Then you have qualitative, which is like the opposite of that, which is like words. So interviews and focus groups. So I'm doing both quantitative and qualitative. My study is mainly qualitative. So the main part of it is interviews with people, but I am also measuring quality of life through um, surveys that have been validated. And that just means like um, it's been like properly assessed and checked that these are suitable questionnaires for, you know, cancer survivors. That So I've got a quality of life questionnaire that's specifically for people with bowel cancer. Um, I've also got a distress thermometer, which is just like on a scale of zero to 10, how distressed have you been in the last seven days? Um, and I'm also measuring a, um, I'm also measuring financial well-being. So yeah, basically my process is um, I, you know, recruit cancer survivors through hospitals um, and through clinicians. And then I send them um, the questionnaires that I did on, that I mentioned on quality of life. Um, then I get them to do an interview. And in the interview, I ask them about, you know, their experience since their cancer treatment, any challenges that they're having. And I've also got some topics of specific interest to me, like uh, their interactions with the healthcare system, their finances and returning to work or continuing working and, you know, how they're coping with their um, challenges. And through the interviews, I also like use their, um, their survey responses. And I ask them about, you know, you mentioned you have, you particularly struggling with pain or whatever. Can you elaborate on that? So um, that's a really good way of making sure that what they're saying kind of correlates to what they said in the questionnaires, just to make sure it's a bit more, uh, we call that like data triangulation, which is a bit of a technical term, but it just means like using different ways to, to measure the same thing. And I, I think that's so important as well, because it really puts faces to the problem. I mean, you can say bowel cancer, but when you're talking to, you know, John or Patricia or, you know, these real people who have these real, you know, challenging experiences, um, it just adds so much to, you know, getting your, you know, research out into the world, being able to have quotes that are really powerful from people. Do you have any sort of memorable people who you've spoken to? Yeah. Um, well, something that I was just going to say, just based on something you said previously was I really do like the qualitative component because, you know, if you look at survey responses, if someone says like, they've got a lot of pain or they've got no control of their bowels. Um, it's easy to just sort of be like, oh, okay, like they have a lot of pain. But when you talk to someone, you realize like how difficult that can actually be for them. So one person who was really memorable was um, someone who had um, chemotherapy and from the chemotherapy, they had this um, like phenomenon called like chemotherapy induced peripheral neuropathy, which is when like yes. you um, basically like the nerves in your body kind of get messed up from chemotherapy. And a lot of the times it's in your fingers and your feet and a common expression we use to describe it is like having pins and needles or numbness, 
but this person was saying like it's really more than that it's like having pain it's like kind of feeling like maybe um you're I think she mentioned it was like walking on glass all the time like her feet just really hurt and her hands really hurt and she was like you know you use pins and needles because you've never experienced something like this it's it's not pins and needles it's actual pain and it's impacting um you know, your ability to walk, your ability to um, use your hands. So I've talked to a lot of people who would say things like, you know, I'd pick up a plate and I'd be eating at a party and I didn't realize that I've dropped my plate because like you just can't feel it. Um, And because of that, like they can't really cook, they can't do food preparation, things like that. Um, Some people who have manual labor jobs can't do the physical work they've got. So that was something that really stood out when I was doing that research. I know how much I complain when I get a paper cut on one of my fingers. It would be like thousands of paper cuts on every single finger. And you can, every time you try to pick something up, it's that yeah. you know, pain times 50. So Yeah, like oh I do gosh. yoga in certain positions. Like I think there's no blood flow and I'm like, oh my gosh, goodness, that's so uncomfortable. And then I shift my leg and it'll, it'll ease up. And I just think, oh, imagine if you like, no matter what position you're in, mm. no matter what you do, this this just doesn't ease up. Like I can't imagine what that would be like. And at the moment there's like no cure for it. Um, so it's kind of just like a wait and see if it gets better. Um, so yeah, that's a huge thing. I think that, you know, when you hear those stories from people, it also makes the research that you're doing so much more memorable as well. And it also makes you, you know, really want to make a difference adding that emotional factor, like, yeah, survey responses are great and, um, you know, provide a lot of great data, but, you know, getting that qualitative side of it and getting to hear people's stories, um, you know, it really, I think drives your passion further for that topic as well. Yeah, definitely. And what I like about the qualitative is, um, this person was saying, you know, if they put down that they've got a lot of pain, you might look at it and you might think that it's surgical pain and you might think like, oh, you know, maybe we have to do something to ease her surgical pain. But she's saying, no, the pain is really from the chemotherapy. But the survey that she fills out, there's nowhere to actually say like what the pain is or where it's from. And that's why I think these people really enjoy also participating in this research because they can actually talk to someone who's like listening and um, they can actually sort of go into more detail about the challenges that they have. Mm. And then the good thing about research is that we then try to, you know, relay that information back to clinicians who can then change their practice, which is the ultimate sort of gold standard and goal for us, isn't That's it? That's a dream, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Chloe, I know that there's lots of great things, but do you have a best and worst part about being a researcher? Best part about research is like learning new things all the time, like even just with the one topic of advanced bowel cancer survivorship, I'm still learning so many things like every day. And I really enjoy that. I think you need to have that sort of in you to be a researcher, like that curiosity and, and um, desire to learn things. So I really enjoy doing that. Um, I guess like a downside of research is that it's just so slow, (laughs) like, (laughs) <laughs> you think you're going to make a difference, you know, publish a paper every month or something, make a difference, you know, talk to clinicians, change the policies in hospitals, change the world. And then like three years later and you're still doing the same research. It's just, it, it, it is really slow and it's, but you know, that's 
a testament to how like rigorous and how um, the quality of work that you do is 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 very it's very detailed you know um, tedious work but that's what makes it good quality research so so true so Chloe we have um, a little segment called audience asks and we have some questions from Twitter for you from our love our lovely audience um, so the first one is from um, at J Red Heart Julie Redburn who's a professor at the University of Sydney actually um, and she wants to know how do you balance paid work with PhD research okay I'm maybe not the person to ask this to because I'm actually <laughs> I'm on a scholarship for my PhD, so I actually kind of um, nice. Congratulations! <laughs> it makes life so much easier <laughs> because I actually don't have to constantly look for paid work. Um, I treat my PhD as my job, so I try and make sure that I do nine to five uh, work days on my PhD, um, week days as well, and try not to work on the weekends. I was for a time doing tutoring. Um, last year uh was it last year oh gosh my my years are all messed up because of covid i think it was it was actually 2020 wow okay <laughs> no it was semester 2 2020 i did tutoring and um, and that that actually was really hard to to balance um especially when it was assignment marking time i think i spent like two to three weeks just marking essays and not actually doing my PhD work. So I don't know how people do that. I know friends who sort of have like two days doing their paid work and then the rest of the time doing PhD work. But that also means that sometimes they, you know, they work on weekends and things like that. And I'm very lucky I'm living with my parents at the moment. Um, so I don't have to worry too much about, you know, paying rent or paying bills and things like that. So yeah, I know that so, that's yeah. very important for my mental health is making sure that I work nine to five and Monday to Friday. 100% having those boundaries is so important. Mm -hmm. Wait, what scholarship did you win? It's the research training program. Yeah. It's like a stipend scholarship. Yeah. So from the Australian government, it's a very fancy one, actually very competitive. Yeah. Oh, so thank well you. Done. Yeah. I've also got a top up scholarship that comes with my PhD. It's um, funded by the NHMRC. So that gives me a little extra every year as well, which is really good. And it's scholarships are tax free. So if anyone's doing any, anyone's thinking of doing a PhD, like um, the scholarships are tax free. So it's almost like getting like kind of a job, like a research job, because after you pay taxes, I'm probably probably getting the same amount as someone who pays taxes on their work as well. So yeah, it's not a bad deal <laughs> actually. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. And I was going to say, yeah, I have another audience question, but before I ask it, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about funding because, you know, I think you touched on it a bit. We see a lot of advertising for breast cancer. There's a lot of money out there. You know, the McGraw Foundation just raised such an amazing amount of money um, at the pink day at the cricket just oh. a few weeks ago now. Um, but with bowel cancer, we don't hear about it as much. So is there, you know, is there funding out there for you or is the pot, you know, a bit smaller or how does that um, work? To be honest, I'm actually not too sure about that. Um, 
it's probably something I'm going to have to look into once I finish my PhD and look for work. Um, but there's obviously like organizations that get money for cancer in general. So, you know, like cancer council and things like that. Um, and they probably would distribute the money in some way. I don't know if they allocate more towards the more common cancers and less to the rarer cancers, which is obviously still an issue as well, um, you know, kind of dividing it like that. But I'd imagine that there is a bit less money for bowel cancer um, as opposed to, like you said, breast cancer. There's so, so many initiatives and they're great. Like it's, it's wonderful that we have so many initiatives for breast cancer, but there is like quite a lot. And unfortunately, a lot of research, um, even when you're looking at cancer in general, a lot of research has uh, like a majority of breast cancer participants. So we're not really seeing as many um, uh, other cancers being represented. So yeah, I, I would imagine that there is less funding for bowel cancer, which is... So maybe we need to yeah, start shame. waving the uh, the brown the ribbon. Brown flag. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> so our other... Um, audience asks question is from at Clara Zwack, who is also um, a postdoc at Sydney Uni. And she wants to know, do mental health issues present differently in men and women who are living with bowel cancer? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I think everyone has, you know, issues with going to the toilet and embarrassment related to that. Um, I'm honestly not too sure because in terms of qualitative work, you have smaller sample sizes, so they might not be as representative or as generalizable as those really big, you know, quantitative studies with like hundreds or thousands of people. So I'm, I'm not too sure in terms of larger studies, but in my studies, I'm not seeing too many gender differences. Cool. I guess, yeah, with qualitative work, like you were saying, because the sample sizes are so small, like it's harder to um, sort of see those differences. Whereas with a bigger study, you know, if you had, um, you know, you might be able to see some more differences between men and women. But yeah, I guess with qualitative work, it is a little bit harder. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Qualitative work is usually for like when you kind of have a topic that hasn't really been explored yet and you don't really know what to explore. So you just get them to talk. And then through that, you know, a large quantitative study might develop because you you start realizing what the common issues are and what are some things that you want to look into further. And that can help guide a development of like a questionnaire or quantitative study. So yeah, at the moment, it's very like sort of, sort of vague findings that you kind of want to narrow down into more specific mm -hmm. findings. Yeah. And Chloe, what's next for you? Oh, that's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I, I need to get my PhD done. <laughs> that's what's next. Um, after that, I'm not too sure. I want to stay in research, definitely. In terms of whether I'm going to get a postdoc, I don't know. I don't, just like how I didn't know if getting a PhD was easy, I don't know if getting a postdoc is easy. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, I would love to stay with the uni um, because I, I don't know. It's what I'm used to. I, I really like the department I'm in. And uh, yeah, I just, I really like the way that the uni, you know, works with researchers. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm open to a lot of things. So if a opportunity comes up in industry or with the government, like 
I'd be happy to explore that too. But right now, I just need to write my PhD. (laughs) Yeah, that's a minute first. (laughs) Climbing that mountain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like something that I like, I was like, oh, I'm not going to think about that until next year. And then now all of a sudden it it is next year, 2022. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, I have to start thinking about that now. So is there any final things you want to want to tell to our podcast guests or is there, you know, anywhere that they should be following you so they can keep up with your research and make sure they're in the loop um, with whenever there's more things uh, raising the brown uh, flag? Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at Chloe underscore YS underscore Lim. Hey, I think it's just important to um, you know, be kind to people. Um, sometimes people have challenges and they're not very obvious on the outside. So keep that in mind. Um, and be grateful for some of the mundane things like being able to push off going to the toilet for 10 minutes. Like even that's just a a miracle, um, in this day and age when anything can happen. Um, just be grateful of the little things and, um, and yeah, maybe uh, when you hit that age, do do your test for bowel cancer. Um, tell people to do their tests, and don't be afraid of you know speaking to your doctors about anything that you're concerned about. If anything, it's better to get treated early rather than push it off because you're worried, um, and then have further complications down the line from that. Absolutely, let's let's take one step forward to ending the stigma. Absolutely. I think we all know somebody that is over the age of 50 or around that age. So if everyone could just, you know, remind one person to do their bowel cancer screening, um, you know, we could really make a difference. Start the conversation so, and spread the word, yes. everyone. Raise that brown flag. Wave it around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just need to find some sort of marketing guru to make this brown flag beautiful, don't we? <laughs> Honestly, I think there is like a colorectal cancer um, organization that uses a blue ribbon, but it was just funny, like hearing from this person, like, what are we going to do? Like have a brown ribbon? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. All right. Well, Chloe, thank you so much for coming on. We've done the research to be a guest with us today. Um, You have honestly taught us a lot about bowel cancer and, um, you know, hopefully we're looking forward to seeing your amazing work in the future and everyone can follow you on Twitter to um, keep that up. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was a bunch of fun and yeah, I'm glad that you learned things. I hope other people have learned some stuff about bowel cancer too. Thanks for listening to We've Done the Research today. We hope you learned something new. And if you like our content, please follow us to hear new episodes every Thursday. You can follow us at Done the Research on Twitter. Catch you next week.